Take your Bibles, if you please, or if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 2. On this Mother's Day, and again on Father's Day, we're going to do something a little bit different, but we will always come on both days to this text, to be faithful to the text, to speak to the issues of the day, to encourage the people of God, and I trust to learn some things about living a holy and godly lives in the age that we presently inhabit. I find it very fascinating and not coincidental that in this week of Mother's Day, there was a calculated leak of a draft of a Supreme Court justice opinion on Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization and the potential challenge to the landmark Roe v. Wade decision of a number of years ago. In the meantime, from the start of that decision, 63 million children been aborted here in the Western Hemisphere as a, in light of that Roe v. Wade decision. Some might wonder why we start here on Mother's Day. Well, I'm just dealing with the hand that I was dealt with. I find it really interesting that the timing of this was to stir up trouble on Mother's Day, and I couldn't help but think of the incoherence of that whole message. On Mother's Day, we are going to send people to churches to protest moms and an abortion decision. When we stop to think about some of that and the upheavals in our culture, protesters at uh, Supreme Court justices' houses even yesterday, and the warnings, even from the fine senator of New York, Senator Schumer, that made it very clear that the price would be paid if there was a decision like this. How did we get here? How in the world do these things happen? How in the world does the church of Jesus Christ face up to the realities of the day And I think that even more alarming, how is it that for those who take any stance contrary to the liberal, cultural, education, and political elites, be tagged as the most extreme political organization that ever existed in the history of America? What you might not know is there was even a call from the left to protest churches today show up at churches under protest of this leaked document that won't become a decision for a couple of months down the road. All of this is orchestrated, but it shows us something very real. We live in perilous times, and make no mistake, the church has become the target of some of these challenges to the status quo, the lack of ethics and morality of a culture, and the truth that we proclaim from our pulpit. And the answer to the question, how did we get here? There are consequences for a very long journey of compromise down a very steep and slippery slope to the place where we have denied absolute truth, challenged the notion of God as the author of life, and taken things into our own hands, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I was reading even this past week about the great exchange, and it brought a number of things to my mind. Isn't it interesting how our culture today wants to exchange themselves for God, and yet the greatest message ever proclaimed in the history of the world is that God became man to give us life as a ransom for many. Talk about the great exchange. We must hold the line and stay true to our beliefs. We must uh, return to the reality that we live in an increasingly sinful world. We must not fall prey to this notion that this is the end of abortion. It's not. It's not. God forbid that we continue to kill children, but in a culture absent of truth and in a culture absent of God, what did you expect was going to happen? These are the consequences of this long journey to the place that we find ourselves today. So happy Mother's Day to you. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why this was timed the way it was. But I have a God who knows of the timing, a God who knows of the challenges, a God who knows 
that He is the author of life and only He has the right to take it away, a God who has spoken into this world, a God who has spoken into the hearts and minds of, of His people, and a God who gives us clear direction as to how we live soberly and righteous in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Well, it's simple. I have a copy of the book. So, as you take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2, follow along as I begin reading in the first verse. But as for you, really important transition in this context, he is saying, here's what all of the false teachers are proclaiming and telling you, but as a Christian, this is what I expect of you. Paul speaking to the pastor Titus, and Titus and Paul then speaking into the lives of the people that were entrusted to them. But as for you believers, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine there to teach what is good. And so train the young woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, I pray you bless the reading of Your Word. I pray that You would bless Your Word as we, as we open it and speak to it this morning. I pray that through the ministry of Your Spirit, You would help us to grasp the truth of Your Word and the truth of this passage, that You would equip and prepare us to live in this present age, to meet its challenges in every form, and to stand strong in the midst of fear and intimidation in the current and contemporary crisis of the day, reminding us that things will continue to unravel until the sound of a trumpet, but always assuring us that a better day is coming. But somehow, in between that better day and today, we need instruction and help as to how to live our lives in this present age and live in such a manner that we are different than everyone else in this world without Christ. So, as Paul gives clear direction to Titus and extension to the congregation that he writes to, I pray that You'd give us clarity of understanding, and I pray that You would help and bless us as as we bring forth truth from this passage, both today and on Father's Day. And I pray that You would give a special wisdom and discernment and soundness of speech to all who will delve into this text this morning. May it all be for Your glory. May You continue to refine and shape and change us, and may we indeed live soberly and righteous in this present age, waiting. As we wait, grant us peace, grant us mercy, and give us Your grace to respond to the evils of the day to live holy, separate lives under the God who has rescued us through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
as salt and light of this earth to your glory alone we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning and on Father's Day, you'll notice that uh, there's three of us up here. And whenever three of us are up here, we have limited time, and we have a little timer. No, we don't have a timer. But uh, we, have, we have limited time, and we've separated this, but I can make no promises that we will keep within our time frame. So be patient with us whenever you open up the pulpit to three men who have something to say. Who knows what's going to happen? But the Holy Spirit is going to take this text, and I, and I pray, speak not just into the culture, but speak into the issue of the day. My assignment this morning is the assignment of sound doctrine and the first verse of, that, uh, of chapter 2 that, that, that Titus receives from Paul in this writing. But as for you, Titus, and I believe that we could also say, as for you all believers, teach what accords, what is in keeping with, what corresponds to, what is in consistent with sound doctrine. As Paul writes to Titus, as he writes to the church here, he is speaking not just about pulpit ministry and teaching ministry. In fact, when he speaks of the issue of teaching, he is simply saying, I want you to speak in in ordinary conversation with utmost persistence. May May your speech always be characterized and built upon what is sound in doctrine, what is right and, and, and what is true, what is, what is fitting according to that truth. When we look at that sound doctrine, of course, he's talking about the content of the Word. It is the Word that guides us in decision-making. It is the Word that establishes how we should live in this present age. It is the Word that gives us guidelines as to even how to deal with difficult situations. And we're going to find that it is this Word that teaches us how to live as a family. First, the nuclear family, mom and dad and the children, but the family of God as well. And we all represent that family here. So, Titus, as for you, teach, speak, even in casual conversation, those things that accord, that are in keeping with, that that are biblical in terms of this present age and how you live your life. And that, that sound doctrine that he speaks of comes through the grace of God, verse 11, that has appeared in our salvation that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait. So what is this sound doctrine? What is this speech that is sound in its teaching and its content? What is it that he is encouraging Titus to do in that congregation of believers and believers who are the recipients of Paul's letter. Well, without doubt, he's speaking of teaching the Word of God in a formal setting to go progressively through that Word, to draw doctrine and teaching out of that Word, and to give attention to things in that Word as you speak both professionally and congregationally and in your private lives about what it means to live life under the sun as a Christian. I don't know if you've ever read any Charles Spurgeon letters or, or books. He has a, a book out called Lectures to My Students. Charles Spurgeon had this way of being bombastic at sometimes, uh, a little sarcastic at other times, but uh, in no way would he leave you wanting for what exactly he was trying to communicate. So he is speaking of teaching sound doctrine, and he's speaking of it in casual conversation and from the pulpit and from the, from the classroom. And, and Spurgeon writes in that text, I know a minister whose shoe latchet I am unworthy to unloose, whose preaching is often a little better than sacred miniature painting. I might almost say holy. He is great upon the ten toes of the beast, the four faces of the cherubim, the mystical meaning of the badger's skins and the typical bearings of the staves of the ark and the windows of Solomon's temple, the sins of businessmen, the temptations of the times, the needs of the age. He scarcely touches 
upon it to tell us what you really think, Charles. He is saying, listen, you must teach sound doctrine, and from the Word, you must understand the deep truths of Scripture. You must lay them out for your people in a congregational setting. You must teach them, yet at the same time, you must speak to how they're supposed to live their lives. Lofty doctrine and understanding and the ability to pass an ordination council or, or, or a Bible exam is not the extent of what you're supposed to be teaching. In essence, Spurgeon is calling us back, and, and I believe Paul's doing it in this context, in this casual setting. He's calling us to our conduct. He's calling us to behavior. He's saying, this is how you're supposed to live in the age which you inhabit. He's going to call upon character traits. He's going to call us to certain types of behaviors. He's going to instruct us, not just in the truth, but what that truth means when we live our lives in an increasingly pagan age. So as you teach sound doctrine, we're studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology on Wednesday nights. It's deep and it's lofty and and there's some mystery to it. But what does that mean in my daily life? That's what Titus is getting to here. And he will speak to both older and young men and older and young women. He's saying, "This this is what the Bible expects of you. In essence, Spurgeon is saying, truth is critically important. But we also must teach what is in accord with that truth when it comes to conduct and behavior. In essence, Paul is offering to Timothy and to that congregation direct instruction as about how believers are to live with a sense of purpose regardless of the age in which we live, no matter if it is an ungodly and worldly age. And there can be no doubt we live in an ungodly and worldly age today. I also want you to notice if you move down through the text, starting in verse 2 and, and onward, and I'm, I'm not going to steal from the other men. They're going to address some of that. But as you begin to look down the text, what he's focusing upon are, are, are character traits of those who believe the Bible, those who, who hold to sound doctrine and behave in accordance with that sound doctrine. He's talking about qualities of temperament, these overarching qualities that come from the Word of God developed through the Spirit of God that come from sound doctrine that tells us how we ought to live in this present age. Look at some of these. Self, be self-controlled. Be dignified. Be sober-minded. Be steadfast. Be reverent. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be a slave to much wine. Teach what is good. And it goes on and on and on. So as we face this sound doctrine, it certainly has to do with many of the deep doctrines of Scripture, and we must take a deep dive into the Scripture from the pulpit and the classroom and help you to understand in mind these deep truths about what we hold to be true from Scripture. But we must never divorce what that means in our daily life. In essence, what, what Spurgeon was crying for in these pastors that, that he is training and preparing is simply this. Pay attention to the imperatives, not just to doctrine itself as a teaching. What, what, what are imperatives? The demands and the commands of Scripture. So why is it that we need to be self-controlled and dignified and sober-minded? Well, that comes from our, our deep and lofty theology and doctrine. But it's the application of that. It is the imperative that if this is true, then this must be true as well. So be this, and don't be this, and be this, and don't be this. And this text is not at all popular in the culture that we live in today. You're going to see that as we get down into the middle of it. It says some things that will stretch us both as men and women of God. What I'd also point out to you is that he's talking about these character traits and, and, and Christian biblical temperaments that are built and, and derived from our sound doctrine that we are to be obedient to, but he's not telling us the details as to how we need to work that all out. We are to work it out, of course, under the guidance of the Spirit 
and all of us must possess these temperaments and, and character traits, but he's not getting into the business of telling you, so this is what you need to do tomorrow. I believe that not only is there a mistake sometimes and only focusing on the deep truths of Scripture with no application and no reference of the imperatives of Scripture, this is what you need to do and how you ought to live, there's an increasing problem in our culture that is the opposite of what Spurgeon pointed out, and that is we spend all of our time telling people the specifics of how they ought to act and what they ought to do, and we miss out on the sound doctrine and the imperatives of Scripture. So when it talks about submission, it doesn't tell us what that looks like in your home doesn't tell us what that looks like and, and the expression of your God-given personality. Isn't it great that we're all different? You're thinking, that's not good at all. I wish everybody was just like me and thought the same. No, it's great that we're all different. And even as Christ selected His disciples, He selected a real diverse crowd, didn't He? They were all different. But they were all taught the same sound doctrine, and they were all delivered the same imperatives and commands, but they expressed it differently. And you can see that as the New Testament unfolds and in front of us, God used their unique personalities and, and their styles and their character traits to work out the fulfillment of these imperatives. We get stuck often in our conservative circles It says if you're a true Christian, you have to do this particular behavior on this particular day, and if you don't, you can't be godly. And we we take it outside of the realm of Scripture, and we miss the imperatives altogether. We're telling you what to do, and when it doesn't work, you turn around and say, see, it's your fault. It didn't work. Our job is to teach sound doctrine. Our job is to focus on the imperatives, and your job is to work it out with fear and trembling according to the Holy Spirit of God. We don't all do it the same. I had to come to grips with that in my life. I'm a unique guy. Some of you say, a weirdo. Okay, I'll live with that. I'm different, but I know who I am. I know how He's gifted me. I know what works in my life, and I'm responsible for the same sound doctrine and imperatives that you are, but we might get to the fulfillment of those imperatives in a different way, at a different pace might be expressed differently. Some of our homes aren't all the same either. They're not homogenous. Submission in the home will look different in in various different atmospheres. Does that mean one is better than the other? No. Are you fulfilling the character trait and temperament, the imperative to be submissive? Then just work it out. So there are these two extremes, doctrine only, no application or imperative, or I'll tell you how to live with no imperative, and that becomes this legalism of the day today. Paul says, listen, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he focuses on the deep truths and the character and the temperament traits that are instilled in us as we develop these deep truths in our lives and fulfill the imperatives of Scripture, that our lives ought to be characterized by faith and love and steadfastness and be self-controlled and dignified and sober-minded. You get the point. And now work it out. Work it out with fear and trembling for the glory of God. Paul's dealing with heart attitudes that reflect in lifestyles. He's not saying we all have to be identical and we all have to be the same. He is talking about training ourselves in our own unique bent with the uniqueness of our design fearfully and wonderfully made for the glory of God. And Peter wasn't Paul, and Paul wasn't Luke, and Luke wasn't Mark, etc., etc., and etc. But all of them were called to sound doctrine, and all of them were called to fulfill the imperatives of Scripture. That's how Paul launches this text And then he says, now this is how it looks, by temperament and by character, and older men and younger men and older women and younger women, in fact, for God's people. Why? So that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
culture, the time span of history will change the challenges, and it will change the debates, and it will change the struggles, but it doesn't ever change the truth. So, Titus, teach, speak what accords with sound doctrine until Jesus returns again. Mr. Matt is going to come, and he's going to share with us this section here as we go a little bit further in the book of Titus. Well, thank you for having me here this morning. Um, often I'm over in the side wing over here in the children's ministry, and it's a great opportunity to minister to your children. I thank you for giving us this opportunity to uh, impact their lives with the Word of God. Um, often when we think of motherhood, we think of the concepts of nurturing one's child. And when I think about my mother and how she nurtures us three kids growing up, she often would remind my dad with these words, Gary, have you prayed about the situation? Often we would face these crises in our life, and my mom, she would gently remind us as a family, listen, we always need to turn to God in all situations. May it be good or may it be bad, regardless of whatever we're facing, that we need to turn to Him. There are many um, who also find themselves in a similar role of nurturing and caring for others. From the home life to Christian discipleship to Christian counseling, nurturing is one of the main components of caring for another. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, address examples by which Paul instructs Titus to encourage believers. They are examples of Christian living lived out in daily practices. Paul breaks down the model into a two-step process. The first regards getting one's life in order. You know, before you can impact the life of another you really got to get your own life in order. And the second regards the purpose and application of spiritual discipleship. It is a call not to squander one's faith, but to encourage others to share in the same type of faith, which ultimately leads to a peace of God. Titus 2, 3 through 5 can be a challenging passage to understand in regards to the specifics or the general application. One of the things that we encourage in children's ministry when we come across a passage that is very difficult to understand or to gravel over is to first begin by looking at how God manifests himself in that passage. Look at the verses before. Look at the verses after. How is God showing himself? What is the characteristics and actions God is showing? In order to understand the subject at hand of verses 3 through 5, we need to look more closely at the conclusion. Who is God and what has he done? So let's begin with the conclusion. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Clearly from this text, we see that there are two critical things by which God has purpose for us. The first regards the subject that we are His possessions. Today, did you know that you are owned by God? When you place your faith and trust in what Jesus has done for you, that He died and He was willingly subjugated Himself to God, that you are His possessions if you believe in that gospel truth. We have been purchased by God with a costly blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The second regards the characteristic of being zealous for good works eternal works, works which will be carried over into the glorious return, God has purchased believers to build His kingdom both now and into eternity. When we go back to verses 3 through 5, we need to remember that it's these end goals in mind that each of us have been given a unique work to carry out in this present world, a blessing, an opportunity to demonstrate we belong 
singularly to him. Titus 2, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. Who is being referenced here? Clearly, the text is indicating people, older ladies, who have had gone through some life experiences, maybe negative, maybe something that was um, scary for them, or something that was positive. But in, in general, people were looking up to them. They were wondering, they were looking at them and giving them respect for the reverence of their words of wisdom. In general, the text is giving reference to any individual who has an influence in the life of another, not just these older women, but anyone. It is more than a biological connection. It is one who has built a relationship in the life of another, sometimes willingly, like that with a teacher or a mentor or a coach, or even sometimes unwillingly, like that with a neighbor or a co-worker. The emphasis is upon someone who is being admired by another. Paul is calling Titus to encourage these women to be reverent in their behavior, that which would have been considered respectable by those who were observing them. Paul is calling for a characteristic that doesn't show malice or avoidance, but instead a characteristic to understand the power of their actions. Both slander and drunkenness are forms of escape, escape from what one has. Often it is surrounded in a deep covetousness for another. Why are my kids like those kids over there? Why is my home like this home over here? Not seeing one's own blessing as sufficient, but that in some way, shape, or form, their personal allotment is imperfect or tarnished. Paul encourages Titus to remind the believers in Crete that they are God's possession who have been redeemed. There is no perfect family. There is no perfect relationship. All of these things have been tarnished by sin. But through the blood of Jesus Christ and a life lived out in faith, there are deeds of good works which can be accomplished in this world not according to worldly standards, but from the perspective of God's eternal purpose. The second portion of this section reflects what one needs to do after they have centered themselves in Christ. It is a call that is counter to covetousness. When you behave in such mannerisms, you are fighting that covetous spirit that so often creeps up. It is a call to see one's own responsibility as a blessing from God. Titus 2, verse 3 and 4. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands, children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. It is a call to be sensible, a call to understand how wonderfully blessed one is, It is a call of seeing what great privilege God has given you. These are the virtues that oppose a covetous spirit that can so easily creep into one's life and pull the joys away of being zealous for him. Above all, it is a call to love. Love is the foundation of any relationship. When Jesus was being questioned about eternal relationships and about that great commandment, how can I know I have a good relationship with God? He replied in Mark 12, 28 through 30 with these words, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the purest form of commitment. It is that which indicates a conviction both of the mind and the spirit. Paul concludes this portion by stating the main reasons why believers are called to live virtuous lives. Titus 2, verse 4. So that the word of God may not be reviled. No matter who you are, there is almost always someone who is looking up towards you. They admire you for your various reasons. The things that we say and do either in love or covetousness 
will have an impact upon another. I hope today you understand that you are His possessions set aside to carry out a zealous work in the sphere of influence He has given to you. Thank you, Matt. Now I know why we don't have ABF this morning. I've got all these notes and apparently time to share it with you all, and I'm thankful that we will spend this time with you this morning. But that's very important to remember that doctrine. So often we have this separation between these theological truths. There is a God, and He created everything, and and there is sin, and there is redemption, and all these things we think about the course of the gospel, adoption as, as children in his family. And then that all gets set aside, and, and we live this life of struggle, uh, hopefully growth, um, and things are so compartmentalized. And what Mr. Matt just shared, and I'm so thankful for him sharing that with us, uh, is really the tip of the iceberg of many things we like to stick in Titus 2 and just leave them there. And when we think about them, maybe they growl a little bit. What's it mean to be a submissive wife? Looks different depending on the family. But maybe we're told it doesn't and you have to look just like this. And there's an inner part of us that is still struggling with the very thing that led us down our path of wherever we came from before Christ. And that is whether or not God's way is truly better than mine is it possible to run from truth I mean maybe I can give acknowledgement to it and, and I can say yes I believe that I'm a, I'm a Christian I'm a good person and for the most part as far as people can see you know things are okay but I'm still struggling with this inner question of whether my way my pursuit maybe keeping things under wraps that only I know about is still better because letting go of it can be scary Maybe addressing the fact that I don't, I don't want to submit to this guy. He's a jerk. He might be a very bad guy. I don't know. It looks different in every family. This disconnect between doctrine and reality sometimes is missed, even here in Titus. You look to who he was writing, Paul, to, to Titus, in, in Crete, and Crete was a, a bad place, and even references it. He said, listen, everybody knows Crete is full of bad people. But we read Titus like there's this fairy tale that's going on here in, in the church. And, and, and when, I, when I look at this, I think about the realities that are present here in just this room. There really isn't a disconnect between the biblical message and real life. You know, we, we kind of have this idea, you know, the culture, the family, is, is what? What is the culture of your family? What's the culture of this church? We all have a culture. We don't talk about it maybe directly. Maybe you've never thought about it. But what is culture? Culture is this, this habit, this process, this uniqueness amongst the whole world of a group of people and how they live together, how they do life together. And every single family in here has a different culture. Different churches have different culture. Maybe you come from a different culture and you're trying to fit into a new culture, but the reality is real life is not separated from the biblical perspective in any of this, not in the writings, not in any of this. And we come to a, a time like Mother's Day and, you know, we got this picture, this American nuclear family hallmark holiday where you give mom this card and everything's fine. You walk into the house, you know things aren't fine, but they're supposed to be. Or maybe you're here saying, my mom was horrible. Or maybe you're here thinking, I am a horrible mom. It just doesn't fit, and so we don't talk about it, and we somehow think this biblical thing, we just lay on top of our life, and I'm just going to be this better person, the, the best version of me today for God. And then we just, we just flounder because we haven't dealt with those, those core things. You know, the nuclear family, the, the mom, the dad, the wife, the two and a half kids, Three quarters of a dog, maybe half a goldfish. And even as I say that, you know it doesn't exist. I mean, well, not in a good way anyways. <laughs> you know, the truth is, in various ways, and I'm not saying that everyone had it the worst as anyone, but we're all broken. We're, we are. Our humanity, our flesh, every single person is born into this world 
bent on the folly of their own destruction. And I hope and pray every single one in here knows that they have transitioned from that path of foolishness and, and, and come to God personally. And, and, and we would even say based on the gospel, knowing it's only through Christ, knowing that all we have to do is turn away and towards him. And we know these aspects of the gospel. And, and we'll even say we're adopted into his family and we know that, but living it really is sometimes different. I, I think of 1 Corinthians 1. And, and a lot of times we have this idea of perfection. I'm just going to be this, this, perfect, this perfect person in this family expectation of me and you keep struggling with it. Well, in 1 Corinthians, mind you, the church at Corinth was very messed up, all right? There's definitely no um, pretenses about perfection there. And he writes, he said, listen, you're talking about the, the wisdom of this world? And Pastor Jim said already the wisdom of this world has led people to unthinkable places. No one wants to talk about. They just want to double down on. But if you think about the implications of the Roe Wade issue, you think about the implications, even as Pastor Jim pointed out, of people protesting this issue on Mother's Day in front of churches, a sane person would take a step back and just say, okay, so how how did you get here? He's saying, trust me, you are, you are not in line with the wisdom of this world. And we have to celebrate, praise God for that. He's, we've been called out of that. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, you weren't wise according to this world by worldly standards. There's a difference of culture. And right at the beginning of the book, he says, there's a difference here. And you've been called out of that. God chose us that were broken. Fools, even by the standards of this world, despised by this world to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, this is still all about him. And part of this whole family dynamic, if we're honest with our own brokenness, honest of our own past, honest with our own struggles, even if we're raised in a Christian home and a good family, you walked into this whole family dynamic and you realize, I still just, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. The reality is it's all of God, and that's the point. It's part of the process. And in this long list of things in Titus, you might say, well, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I certainly don't know if I'm doing that, and I don't know if I want to. The ultimate question is, will I continue to trust that God's way is better? That humbling myself before him as I come and, and finally accept that salvation. That yes, I'm willing to admit I'm, fi- I'm a sinner and I'm broken and there's nothing that I can do. And God, you're the only one that can save me. And continue that reality of repentant dependence on God's transformation through the rest of our life. Because he does. So as we look at the real life picture... We see right here in in Titus, the beginning, as we've already discussed, when Paul is writing, he's like, listen, this family culture is out of order. The the culture in the church was broken. Leadership was broken there. Titus was sent there to to correct those things. In in fact, not only was it broken, this real-life family, but it was broken in a way that only the truth of the gospel, only the truth of sound doctrine, and only the, the conviction to share it and, and to live it and to call others alongside to do it with you was the answer. And that's still the answer today. And that's part of the reason why we celebrate Mother's Day in a very special way because we know that there's this ideal and sometimes moms are a great picture of that selfless love. I know my mom was. And I'm so blessed to have that. Maybe yours wasn't, but that doesn't change that goal of growing together in various ways through all of this. And so as we look at this family culture, real-life family, think about all the brokenness, maybe not just in your life, but those around you. And, and ask yourself, with it being out of order, is this out of order from God's perspective? Yeah, that's the ultimate thing. See, from the world's perspective, this is the, this is the uh, contrast. The world's perspective would say, well, no, you fix it this way and just, just live out your life. Maybe your marriage just doesn't work for you. Maybe your kids just aren't enjoyable for you. May, fill in the blank. You know what worldly wisdom says. No, it's out of order by God's perspective. And it's still a call back to that question, is this God's way or, or my way? And the implications 
ripple through those relationships all around us. And even here in the text, seeing this need for correction, seeing this direction for that correction, we see that this positive and negative impact of living it out is very clear in, in Titus 1.11. Because what's going on right now are there are those that are, are teaching contrary, not just in what they were speaking, but even as they are living their life, possibly even in these homes as they were being housed there. We are not sure. But they were upsetting whole families for shameful gain, teaching what they ought not to teach. This is an example of the negative impact. Things out of order, in line with what God created family and relationship to be, will always have bigger impacts than on just the individuals. But the flip side, the positive side, is the implication here is, is you set these things in order, instead of, instead of disrupting and instead of upsetting whole families, the implication here is, is that they're rooted in goodness. They're rooted in the fruits of righteousness. They're rooted in what it should be. And that's the... Imp- that's, that's the uh, impetus, that's the encouragement, that's the excitement to be able to say, hey, listen, it might be broken, but as I submit these things to God and trust him for it, I, I've got to commit this to the Lord. That rooted in truth and settled leads to those fruits that we see here, not just that the word of God wouldn't be slandered, but even greater, we have those fruits of righteousness to his glory. Because listen, you say, What's going on in this situation or that situation? It's all of the Lord. Anything good that is coming out of my life and my family and my relationships is truly of him. But as we look at this, the positive negative impacts, we know that you know, it can be either way. Sometimes it's missed. And as the family um, ministries pastor, I, I run into this sometimes. It's just answering the question, family is bigger than just the nuclear family. Now, in our society, the nuclear family is under attack. It's been for decades, marginalized, redefined, attacked in various ways. But when we talk about family at church, we're blessed to have bigger family than just the nuclear family. And a lot of us come from broken backgrounds. Maybe right now you're in the midst of brokenness in your family situation. You know, the Bible meets us in reality. And I love how it talks about this family situation, even in Matthew 12. Jesus himself, you might say, who would have a more perfect family than Christ? Let's see, his brothers rejected him, called him a lunatic, apparently didn't even believe in him until after his resurrection. His mom was the one who stuck with him, even to the point of the cross, but that was it. He had to commit the care of his mother to John, who was the only other disciple, apparently, that stuck around at his crucifixion. His dad died at some point, off the scene, not sure. That was Jesus' family. That's, that's reality. That, that was where he was at. And, and when we look at his response here, and it may be hard to read that reference, but in Matthew, I love what he had to say when his mom, his sisters, brothers were outside waiting to speak with him. He said to the man who told him, because it was so crowded they couldn't get in, he said, who is my mother? He looked around. He said, who is my mother, really? And, and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Think about Jesus' perspective. Think about how this ties into doctrine. We'll say that we're adopted into God's family and honestly, so quickly, we'll compartmentalize and live as if we're all alone. And Jesus was saying, I've got family here. You know, there's a higher order of family than just biological connection. And if you come from a broken family or you're in the midst of a broken situation in your own family, you know that the relationship is so much more than blood. Praise God for blood relationships that are rooted in the family of God that love each other and love him. That's a wonderful blessing, but it's not always the case. And he looked around and he said, listen, all those that love my father, that obey his commands, his imperatives, it's more than just lip service, they live it. They're my family. 
And when we talk about family ministries, we have to understand, yes, we want to minister to families, the nuclear family, mom, dad, two and a half kids, half a dog. We, we care about that. But I can't do that, Mr. Matt, Pastor Jim. We, we, we're not enough. We're three guys. We were never meant to. Just as Christ passed on that ministry to disciples and the disciples to those ministries of those in the various churches that they were a part of investing and planting, carrying on that great commission from Jerusalem. Ephesians 4, equipping the church, the people for the work of the ministry. That's one of our jobs as pastors. We are family. And so these two basic relationships are very clear and sometimes we forget that. Yes, the individual family matters. Wives, your marriage matters. Your motherhood matters. It's the core building block to the future, these family dynamics. And you see that in the passage. It doesn't mean that the the family doesn't matter. I mean, in verse 11, you see that one of the issues going on here is it's upsetting the whole family. So it doesn't trivialize or marginalize that. It's still a core fundamental institution. And you can't miss verse 4, as Pastor, or I'm sorry, Mr. Matt said, we're supposed to be teaching older women, we're supposed to be teaching younger women to love their husbands and their children. This matters. But sometimes we miss the fact that it's so much bigger than that. And even in the opening verses of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 4, you see something we often just run over because it's the introduction. He's writing this to Titus, my true child in common faith. We are the family of God. You may not have a marriage. You may not have children. You may not have parents. Say everyone has parents. You may not know your parents. I don't have family. You have family in God's family. Mother's Day is not about me because I don't have any kids. Paul had a son we never begot. So this is so much bigger than just those individual relationships biologically or through marriage. All the way through this, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, the individual churches are united in this object of ministry. All the way down in chapter 2 and verse 2, all the older men, you have a responsibility. All the older women, you have a responsibility to those who are younger. You're like, wait a minute, I'm not related to them. They're not my responsibility. God says, yeah, they are. They are because we're family. And lastly, in chapter 3, we didn't get to that, but the very first verse, Paul references all of them. and says, remind all of them the whole family of God in Crete, all of the churches, all of the people in those various congregations to be submissive to authority. This matters. And I know we have a sense of that, but the question here this morning, even as we reflect on motherhood, maybe more specifically, I gotta be careful, guys. If we're gonna do this in six weeks, I, I, I gotta be careful to save some for next time. But as we focus on motherhood, We have to be reminded that God's family is all of us that are truly his. I hope and pray every single one of you are sure of that today. That's the most important relationship to get right. As Mr. Matt said, we, we have to ask ourselves, why is this great or why is this so hard for me? Get that first relationship right whether it's a whole family with a broken past, whether it's a broken family and you're looking to a whole future, what culture, what culture reinforces my life? Am I running after the culture of the world? God says we've been called out of that to something new. Are are we willing to truly lean into that culture that God calls us to in his family and trust that this truly is what's best for me? And there's plenty of evidence out there the opposite is not what's good for us. If we aren't willing to walk that path, we may end up finding ourselves in surprising places. Maybe you feel like you're there now. We never thought you'd be there in your life. There comes a point. Maybe this is just a reminder for us. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to rejoice. God's way is wonderful. I can't run for the truth. 
And following it, following those imperatives bring blessings that I could never have imagined. What am I reinforcing in my life? And one of the aspects we haven't talked about is that we teach no matter what we do. It's more than just what we say. Everything in our life reinforces what we believe. What doctrine, if we were to look at each one of our lives, would someone be able to say, this is what they really believe? What am I teaching? What am I believing? What am I committing to in the midst of all this? And then we have you turn to a lot of different places. I wonder if you would just very quickly turn to Ephesians 3. We'll close with this this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. I love this passage. I think of this often and just realize the slide is wrong. We're going to read verse 22. That's nobody's fault. That's mine. We're going to read verse 20 as well. Ephesians chapter 3. The contents of this, I'd have you read on your own, but this is just Paul reflecting on the gospel, around the wisdom of God in regards to making known to everything that he is the one who's working good out of chaos according to his eternal purposes. And we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And that's the foundation to the next word here in verse 14. For this reason, why all these things he's spoken of, the greatness of the gospel in chapter 2, this reflection on the role of the gospel in his suffering even despite it in chapter 3. And we see, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen, we can't do any of these things. We can't do any of these imperatives without God working in and through our lives. By the the works of the flesh, by the strength and power of the flesh, we aren't going to be able to do this. But we can as he strengthens us. That was Paul's prayer. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And if you're resisting aspects of what you know the scriptures say to be true, not just knowing it and saying you believe it, but living it, you know, we can come to him and ask, Lord, would you just help me? Let me trust you. I, I actually say it all the time, by the way. I need that help. I struggle with trusting the Lord, just so you know. I, I'm constantly asking him, and he answers that because as we turn our hearts to him, we find that strength. Rooted and grounded in love. May you, be strength, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't this be a wonderful thing to be praying for ourselves every day and have the confidence, and this is why verse 20 is so important, this is what I love, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Just think about the implications of that. Maybe something to meditate on as you you leave here this morning. What are those things in your life that you could ask for, you could fix with your kids, with your mom, with your dad, with your family, with your neighbors, with your past, with your expectations of the future, with your failure on your way to church this morning? We submit ourselves to the Lord. Trust me, he's able to work beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Will we trust him for that? Will we celebrate that and lean into it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you. The the truth is we, we do believe many things with our mind that we struggle to rest in you with our hearts. We celebrate the gift of mothers We're so thankful as they express a uniqueness of selfless love that displays a greater love that you have even for us, which is unimaginable as we think of it, that reminds us truly of your goodness. We thank you for the gift of family. We thank you for those relationships that we can invest in. We thank you for the relationships you've given to us that have invested in us. And just pray that we'd continue in these different ways, each one of us unique looking to you to form our culture, to follow your paths, to obey your directions. We pray you'd give us the strength when we're weak, that you would give us the faith when we doubt, that you would remind us by your spirit to trust you, knowing your ways truly are better and above even ours, that you would turn our foolishness the demonstration of your wisdom. We commit ourselves to you, our families, our direction, our future, and even the rest of the morning. 
to you. And we ask you to work it out for your glory and your son's name. Amen.